Don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. All right. I'm going to do a five-second pause, then we're going to... Let me make sure I actually hit the record button. I did. Okay, five-second pause. Hey everybody, welcome to a podcast of enchantment. Today I'm joined by Bleacher Report staff writer David Gardner. David, how are you doing, my friend? I'm doing fine, Joseph. How are you? I'm living the dream. I'm currently in pajama pants. What kind of clothes are you wearing? Oh, wow. This is going to be an intimate <laughs> podcast. Uh, I'm wearing jeans and a Henley, which if you know me, it's about the only thing. I wear like kind of a uniform, basically. I, I have like seven shirts and three pairs of pants, and I just cycle between those. I'm a minimalist when it comes to clothes. So you're a cartoon character. I am, yeah. I'm Homer Simpson without the gut, and I do have my hair. <laughs> All right. We're going to start the show as we do always. Always, meaning this is only our second episode of this podcast. Uh, Rapid-fired questions. David, are you ready? I, I hope so. The first one already got me, so I'm ready it, to go. That wasn't even one of the questions. It just naturally came up. Um, yeah. Would you rather be shot by a leprechaun in the head, but you get to ask a question beforehand, or die peacefully in your sleep? Uh, I think I would rather die peacefully in my sleep. Do, do leprechauns, are they known for answering questions? Do they have some wisdom that I don't know about? I think a trick cereal or whatever would be the only thing I would know to ask a leprechaun about. Well, I mean, the, the in theory here, the allure is leprechauns aren't real, so you get to see a leprechaun, and then you get uh-huh. to ask it a leprechaun-y question, like, you know, it's about the pot of gold. Are there sure. other fictitious, fictitious creatures still alive? Um, mm. You're going to die either way. You can right. maybe get some knowledge before you die. That that was the, uh, gotcha. the, the the trick part of the question, but you chose probably the the right answer. <laughs> um, the the uh, next question: What do you think Tom from MySpace is up to? Oh, I think he's probably logging onto Facebook and hate scrolling through his feed like everybody else on a daily basis. Do you think he misses MySpace? It, does MySpace still exist? I don't it know. Does, it does technically. I thought it was still out there, right? Yeah. It, it does, I but it's he not the same. So many friends. Yeah, he like I mean like by law, if you sign up for MySpace back in the day, like Tom was your first friend. Um, exactly. Do you, do you think Kanye West is a reasonable person? No, I don't think. Is that I don't even think that's a difficult question. The other two questions are more difficult than that one. I think he's pretty unreasonable. That doesn't mean he's always a bad person or anything like that i mean he's obviously a creative genius the likes of which we haven't seen very often in music production but uh i mean anyone who wears a maga hat is uh, an unreasonable person in my book i agree he also said that he doesn't he's anti-books and proud of it because nobody wants an inter, uh, uh signature from a book um <laughs> if given 100 free throw attempts how many do you think he can make no crowd just you and one guy to track the free throws 60 to 70 Oh, but my so, high school coach would be very disappointed in that. I used to be like an 85% free throw shooter, I, I, but I haven't practiced in a long time. Yeah, now you're a little bit older. You're washed like everybody else. Like <laughs> nobody's like at their, like when you're done playing sports, you could go play men's pickup as much as you want. You're not going to be anywhere as good as you were when you played every day. Were you good? Did you play? Uh, were you any good in high school? No, no, I was no good. And I was on a bad team. I'm not a sports writer because I was, uh, you know, nearly made it to college or anything like that. I, <laughs> I had no uh, professional ambitions and no one who would have watched me play would have thought that I could have even walked on at a D3 school or anything like that. When did you realize you weren't very good? Like what age? Were you like 10, 15? Oh, seven, eight. Seven? You, know, I... <laughs> you didn't think you might develop a little bit? I get you gave up at eight. 
No, there was a. I had a growth spurt. I was five four in eighth grade, and I was six foot in ninth grade. So I oh. grew about you know eight inches in a year. And at that point, I was like, oh, you know what? I'm gonna dunk. I'm gonna be a great player. And uh, nope, it didn't. Uh, height alone was not what was holding me back. General athleticism seemed to have been a problem. <laughs> what what position did you play? Guard. 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 See, I was in the same boat. I was like five four, five fifth, and five five in eighth grade. Then I shot up to six foot going into my freshman year. And they were like, oh, well, he's going to keep growing, so let's make him a center. And then I mm. got stuck being a seven-foot center. Um, I played in the same high school basketball league as Jerry McNamara. Um, they had a seven, a legitimate seven-foot center. Um, I was still six feet. I had to guard him. He dunked on me a lot. Um, last sure. question in this segment. Favorite romantic comedy of all time? Does The Princess Bride count? Of course it does. Okay, The Princess Bride is my favorite movie of all time, and so it'd also be my favorite romantic comedy. It's also my favorite action movie. It's my favorite drama. It's got everything. Yeah, it's it literally film. falls in every category ever. It is that movie is so good. Um, do you? I haven't watched it in a long time. I'm assuming since it's your favorite, you have. Do you think it's aged well? I watched it like two weeks ago, and it, it definitely ages well. I used to watch it. It's nostalgic for me because I went to a summer camp growing up, and there was no TV or anything at this camp. And the one-night session when you got to watch anything was a movie, and it was always The Princess Bride for some reason. And so I pretty much know the movie by heart, and yet it is still enjoyable for me uh, to watch it over and over again. Some people might say that that's inconceivable, but no, it's the truth. Favorite actor in that movie? Oh, Manny Patinkin, I think. He's got the, you know, he, he goes through the ringer in that movie. He starts off, you think he's going to be a bad guy, and then you see him drunk, and Andre the Giant has to come save him, and, <laughs> you know, he ends up getting revenge on his father. He's the only one who actually gets the revenge, you know, because, uh, you know, the prince actually doesn't die. He's just roped up, and they escape on horses, but he actually gets his revenge. How disappointed are you in the trajectory of Carrie Elwes's career? Uh, Carrie Underwood, it's, or not Underwood. <laughs> I, know, I know I butchered his last name. The guy, the, the lead from the movie. Oh, 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 I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Well, he did Robin Hood Men in Tights, right? And then that was about it afterwards. He was in Saw, and then Saw mm. 9 or whatever it was. I don't watch horror movies at all. Ever. What? Yeah. Oh, no, they scare David. Me. I don't well, like I mean, that's the point. Scared. Yeah. I, and why would I sign up for that? I got a lot of, I got climate change to deal with. I got enough things that are that's, scary in my life. I don't need that. That's what you have real life horror to worry yeah, about. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Hey, all right. So we're going to, we're going to get to some normal questions here. One, don't worry. We have a social justice warrior question for you coming later. Down, oh, down the fantastic. Way. So, you know, you write some longer, longer form stuff for Bleacher Report. Uh, how do you, what's your process? Like, it's a very vague question, I understand. But what's your, like, your process like? Picking out the subject, the topic, and then after. Um, I wish that there was a more clear answer for how I find a story. They come to me in a lot of different ways. Fortunately, I have a lot of friends that 
um, will refer stories to me. People who work in journalism, but not necessarily in sports, they'll find some interesting and say, hey, this seems like it'd be up your alley. Um, I'm, I also think a lot about, you know, what American life looks like changes in that way. And so sometimes I'll find a topic and then uh, that I want to write about that I want to think about. An example would be this Julian Newman story. I was really just wanting to write about what it means to be an Instagram celebrity and w what that translates to into the sports world. And so then I kind of retrofitted it and said, you know, who's going to be the guy that could carry a piece like that? And he might be one of them. And then sometimes it's just like a, a little line in a story that I think uh, might propel something deeper. So like a few years ago at Sports Illustrated, I wrote a story about Derek Gordon, who was at UMass. And at the time, he was the first openly uh, gay college basketball Division One player. And he did this interview where he came out to ESPN publicly. And in it, he just said that his twin brother didn't approve of it. And the questioner kind of moved on afterwards. And I thought that might be a basis for a really interesting story. So I emailed him and I went down and met his family. It turned out his brother had been in prison for an attempted murder. Uh, and there was a whole interesting family dynamic that was playing out there. So you kind of get a sense of some stories that are going to have a little more depth to them. That's what I'm always looking for. And then you know, I make a lot of phone calls and that sort of thing. And then in terms of the process, uh, I try to spend as much time as I can possibly get with people. Sometimes that means 30 minutes to an hour. Uh, sometimes that means you spend a week or two uh, around them in their lives. And then I normally ask them for a list of people who know them really well, uh, as many people as they can think of. I don't put a limit on it, but turns out most people give me about 10 or so. I call all of them to get a better sense of the person. And then I find people on my own, too, because obviously, if you were given the opportunity that I gave, you'd probably put your closest friends, people who really <laughs> admire you. And I try to get people who might have a different perspective on them. Not that I'm looking for dirt, but I want to present the most holistic view of a person possible. So it's a lot of time with the subject. It's a lot of time on the phone with people who know them well. Uh, and then it's a lot of time going back to the subject and cross-referencing stories and fact-checking and things like that. Uh, I tend to wear people out. All right. So you're going to set an argument for me here um, because that sounds very time-consuming. And is. Um, many, many, not many years ago, a couple years ago, I had a fight with a media watchdog guy, a very bad one, in my opinion. I won't name him. Um, that resources are important, That re especially for longer-form writing, that not everybody... It, one is capable of doing it Two, that you know they need to be backed financially to be able to do the travel the calls the time not having to worry about doing other things at the same or hopefully too many other things at the same time um his counter was it's the internet age and anybody all you need to do is make a phone call um hmm. what is your thoughts on resources for the work you do specifically well, I can plug Bleach Report and just say that I'm very grateful that I do work at a place that uh, doesn't expect me to be churning out multiple stories a week or anything like that, that does have a travel budget that allows me to kind of crisscross the country or even beyond that to find really interesting stories. We just sent my very talented colleague, Mirren Fader, down to Australia for two uh, weeks to report this uh, feature on LaMelo Ball. And I think like a story like that, if I can brag on her instead of myself for a second, shows the value of resources. I mean, somebody else could write a story about LaMelo Ball playing in the NBL, or they could evaluate his performance from afar, and a lot of other people have done that. But the impact that when you that you get from someone like Mirren when she's really getting a sense of who this person is, what this journey has been like for them, what they want the future to hold, a, a sense of their inner space, their inner self, their inner psyche. You can't really get that from one phone call. I guess you could if you're like Terry Gross and you're really great and you're on fresh air. Um, <laughs> But she does pre-interviews and stuff like that. I just don't think that one phone 
that, you know, I really feel strongly about. Yeah. I mean, I know Mirren pretty well. Um, I talked to her, her first time when she went to go see the Ball family in, oh, what's that horrible league they were in? Um, they were in Lithuania. Lithuania, yes. And I remember texting her mm-hmm. and her being like, my access was all, you know, messed up and some other things. And then she she did a really good job of, you know, getting around a bunch of things, losing the access to the balls directly. All these, like, a, a ton of obstacles that would normally detract almost anybody else in our industry. But because Bleacher Report was like, you know, stay, and gave her, re- like, she wasn't on there on her own dime, she was able to, you know, turn out a really, really good uh, long-form piece that was looking at the situation at a completely different lens than everybody else was at the time. Um, so not, you're, I guess now you're kind of, I know you, I don't know if you're doing it all the time or not, but I know the other day I saw a tweet saying that you produced this, you helped produce this short video documentary. Um, what's that yeah. all about? Like, is that a one-off for you? Are you going to be, keep, continue doing those? We've had two seasons of this show called Be Real, and uh, I've been helping to produce just a few episodes per season. The kind of scope of the project is that they're inspirational stories in sports, and I'm a person who's like naturally positive. Even if you (laughs) read my stories, you would come away that I'm like a dark and, uh, you know, somber soul. Uh, I am a naturally positive person, and so it's been a cool thing to be involved in. And then it's also just nice to... um, kind of spread your wings and do a different kind of storytelling. There's a lot of differences between how you interview someone on camera versus how you interview them for a written story in person and learning those things was interesting. Learning about, you know, how to hire crews and things like that was interesting. Uh, There's a lot that's gone into it that I've been really proud to be associated with. It's definitely not all my work. I've particularly, um, Another producer that I've worked with on the project, Rachel Roderman, uh, has been doing a fantastic job with these. She's in charge of the whole series, and she just lets me help out uh, from time to time. But I think just generally, if we're talking about, you know, the state of journalism, it's really important for people to dip their toes in whatever kind of medium they can. Uh, Podcasting with you here, uh, audio, obviously, generally, and then video. And uh, I still consider myself a reporter, first and foremost. And so that can go into different fields. And so primarily it's writing, and that's always going to be my main focus, my main passion. But it's nice to just be able to play around with different media. Oh, totally. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, I'm glad somehow this podcast made it into the list of things. Um, no so, doubt. I'm happy uh, to be here. Oh, yeah. I, I love having you here. Uh, so circling back to something we talked about briefly a couple minutes ago. On Twitter, I, I kind of hate Twitter. I'm distancing myself from it. I took it off my phone. I actually removed my, I removed my mentions on my tweet deck. Um, so the only yeah. way, I don't really interact with people anymore. Just in direct messages. I have a couple good faith conversations. Um I do the Substack thing now, mostly because I know people that subscribe there are there. Even if they disagree with me, they're there for me. So if we're having a conversation there, it's in good faith. Um, Twitter could be very toxic. toxic. I still have it because I kind of need it for the industry. And also, like, there is news that happens there. We could get it there first. You approach Twitter how I kind of used to t- approach Twitter, which is um, I'm going to say things, you know, whatever, however I view them in a specific light. You always make jokes at your own expense that, you know, that you're a socialist, social justice warrior. Um, so you're mm-hmm. primarily or a socialist. Not, Either is fine. Uh, not, <laughs> not, not a socialist. Uh, so you are uh, obviously primarily known as a Bleacher Report writer. What? But you're not afraid to do, you know, let your, your political opinion be known or something like sometimes people just brush, you know, 
polarizing opinions, air quotes, under the politics rug, even though it's not politics necessarily. But is there a reason why you don't care? Is it just because, like, you know, you feel like this is a platform you have, you should just use it however you want? Or is there any specific reason that you, you're not afraid to share your opinions on Twitter? Uh, this, I would just say that I think that I'm smart enough not to share anything that will, you know, potentially get me fired. And Bleacher Report has not uh, said for any reason that we can't tweet about politics. I think if I were at ESPN, I probably wouldn't do it, I guess. I don't know. That would be a consideration for me before taking a, a job with them. Not that they're, you know, offering me right now or anything. Not yet. Um, no. <laughs> um, I just feel like uh, for a long time, you know, certainly the way that I was raised was that you didn't talk about religion and that you didn't talk about politics. And I think that that's a shame because those are two things that define our common life together. Religion, I think whether someone believes in God or not and how they practice that on a daily basis is a really interesting question and something that I talk about with my close friends all the time and something that I do talk about on Twitter from time to time. And then politics, you know, people in power benefit from people feeling uncomfortable talking about uh, these things in public. And so I just try to be loose with it, have fun with it, uh, and also point out the fundamental absurdities of the person who's occupying the office of the presidency right now. I mean, he's just not capable of doing the job that he's doing, and he's doing it to the extent that he can, only to benefit himself and not to benefit the nation. And I don't feel like that's a controversial statement to say at all, if you look at his actual history and not through the lens of Fox News. And so I don't have a problem saying things that are true. I also just say ridiculous things that are true all the time, like the fact that I really like that onion rings sometimes end up in your Burger King french fries. I view Twitter as this kind of like space where you say things that are on your mind. I don't honestly think too much about it it would probably benefit my career if i thought more about it but there's only so much headspace that i can give it and i kind of just go reactionarily as it goes along two things i like you said there uh one the bit it's one of the strangest things of trump's presidency is um a lot of non like you know traditional uh legacy outlets covering trump in a way where he'll say like a legit falsehood instead of just calling it a lie or a fabricate like they'll fancy it up like Trump misspoke or Trump alleges or Trump, yeah. instead of just saying Trump lied. Do you know what I mean? Um, right. It's been one of the wilder things of the last few years is how they've covered him. And then the other thing is, and it's in it's a similar thought is when you say something like if, if Trump says something or does something that's, it's factually, you know, incorrect or correct or however to given the context of the situation and you, someone else just repeats it, be like, this is technically incorrect via history facts information we all have whatever and then you get yelled at for it i've always found it strange like if somebody's actually wrong there's no fighting against it like i don't understand how people could fight against facts do you know what i mean um it'd be like saying like you know whatever piece of information from history this is what happened and somebody goes no you're wrong you're like what do you you mean i'm wrong well i believe it doesn't matter what you believe facts are undefeated (laughs) you know what i mean like um yeah so we've created an ecosystem where people aren't really i mean unfortunately i think there's some gaps in the way that we educate people in public education systems in the united states where we're not raising people to be really good citizens and smart citizens i think anytime there's a public large public discussion about journalism people don't really understand source development works how the protection of sources works how the news gathering process goes you know and so i think that's a detriment to people and i think that they make a lot of false assumptions that you know oh just because something's written in the new york times doesn't necessarily mean it's true 
No, it's not necessarily true, but it has been vetted and has been, you know, and it will be corrected if it's incorrect. And versus the president, if he lies, he's just going to double down on the lie and make it even worse the next time he says it. And that's true of politicians of either side of the party. Uh, Most of what I do when it comes to politics is just supporting journalism, trying to make sure that people understand the way that journalism works. And then also, you know, just making fun of people who are patently absurd, like Devin Nunes. (laughs) And I don't think, you know, the the journalism thing, I don't think people, I don't want to speak down to people. I don't think people, all, all the people realize there's a difference between an op-ed writer and then mm-hmm. a reporter. And that like, there's, there's Definitely. layers to this. Like if like, I, how old are you? I'm 30. Okay. So you're not super young. Um, I'm old. Wow. I'm, 30, I'm 36. Well, no, because last <laughs> guest I had on, he kind of stunned me when he said he was 26 years old. So you, mm-hmm. you still remember newspapers, probably the way I remember newspapers as a kid where like the sun, like I, I'm from a smaller city. The Sunday op-ed was a big deal. Like the local newspaper guy, he kind of helped shape everybody's opinion in the city because he had the biggest voice, but not everything he wrote was actually a fact. It was his opinion. That's why I was in the opinion section. Right. Um, as opposed to like, you know, the guy, the, the woman or the man that would cover, you know, the, like the local school board meetings or the city council meetings, and they just be reporting facts. I don't think people realize there's a big difference. Like, you graduate to that level where you could just write opinions. I know it's different now in the internet age where there's so many places people could write where you don't really have to go. I don't want to say pay your dues, but I guess pay your dues is the only way I can put it, to get to that point where you're, you could write these things. And I, obviously under the Trump presidency, journalism has been under attack. I rather, I wish people, instead of just blindly being like, writers journalists are bad would be like well let me find out because some of them obviously aren't going to be ideal but i don't think most of them operate mm-hmm. in bad faith no i think most journalism is done in really good faith and it's done by people who are committed to pursuing the truth and i hold journalists in high regard because i am one so i'm willing to admit that bias but the nation is healthier as a whole. Any nation is healthier as a whole when there's a free press and a press that is empowered to speak truth to power and to challenge people in authority. And I think that's truer now than it ever has been. And so it's encouraging to see gains from in subscribers from like the New York Times and the Washington Post that they're doing better than they have been doing in years. At the same time, it's really disturbing to see the decline of local news coverage as newspapers across the country are collapsing because if you think what trump is doing is bad just look and see what your county comptroller is up to i mean there's probably Mm -hmm. been a scandal in your county in the last few years that was uncovered by a dogged local reporter from a tv station or a newspaper and maybe it wasn't a hundred million dollars at your hotel properties over the course of three years but it might have been a hundred thousand dollars in contracts that were given to this politician's friends and so i'm a big believer and supporter of the process of journalism i am too i think sir uh it's gonna sound like the most um maybe nerdy industry thing to say but i think service journalism is great like the people that go to school board meetings and mm-hmm. all that like when i got laid off from cox media i was coming off a feature story on like the hbl hbcus and maybe the best thing i've ever wrote and i got laid off from there and i uh went to the local paper and i was like hey like uh, I just got laid off, you know, I wouldn't mind coming here to work. And they're like, we can't afford you. And I'm like, well, no, like, I'll take the pay cut. And they're like, blah, blah. And I'm like, no, like, I, I think service journalism is sexy. <laughs> and uh, they, yeah. uh, they they couldn't, af- 
not that they couldn't, they had no room on their butt. Like, because you're saying, like, local papers are just not the same as they were when I was a kid. Uh, my local paper did a great job. One of many papers in the state of Pennsylvania. Um, there's recently been, in the last couple of years, a big archdiocese thing with uh, priests molesting children and the cover-up and all that stuff. Um, I don't want to say okay. the same as the stuff that happened in Boston, but similar. And uh, um, the most of the papers here don't have the resources Spotlight had in Boston. Um, Pittsburgh, really. The Pittsburgh uh, Gazette, I believe it was, did most of the driving, but they worked in conjunction with a couple other newspapers. Um, let's keep moving here because I have a bunch of other questions I want to ask you. I know you're on a time limit here. Um, so... A long time ago, Bleacher Report, many moons ago, many moons ago at the dawn of the internet age, um, it was a different place. It was almost like a glorified message board. Um, anybody with a keyboard could write there. Over time, it became more credible. They went out of their way to become credible. Um, and that's a very difficult thing to do, to start as a content mill and then become credible. That's very tough to do, and they managed to do it. Um, now, granted, everyone's experiences at places are different depending on their role, their job, but what's your what's your experience been at like at Bleacher Report since you joined? Uh, it's been really great, honestly. Uh, my editor in chief Ben Osborne is a great guy, and you couldn't ask for a more supporting boss. Um, some of the people who I worked with closely originally, Matt Sullivan and Maurice Peebles, have left the company to do other projects, and uh, they were fantastic people. And obviously, I'm surrounded by a number of greater great writers, not just myself. I'm gonna not name anyone out of fear that I'll forget <laughs> to name someone and uh, I'll upset them. But uh, you know who they are if you're reading Bleacher Report, we've got a ton of heavy hitters and people who are really committed to doing outstanding journalism. And I really love and value uh, working with those people on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, like I said earlier, when we were talking about resources, this is a place that um, you know pays a reasonable salary to its reporters and allows for us to pursue really far-flung ideas around the world, around the country, and is very supportive of big projects and investigations and all sorts of things and so um, especially in this era of media transition it's hard to imagine a better place uh, to work than BR alright I'm going to let you have to look here easy closing questions there's only a couple of them and then you're a free man okay. are you ready these are all, all leprechaun fair. stuff the, but yeah, I'll, yeah back, all I'll, back the, I'll back to the silly shit where I'm not asking you any kind of normal questions Uh, what's okay. removing all forms of writing or creativity from the table so what's your dream job can't be like you're already a writer so i want to be a fiction writer or i want to make movies all forms of creativity are removed writing writing forms are removed what's your dream job um that's a great question can it just be like that I'm some sort of private equity billionaire who doesn't really do anything but has investments in stocks and lives on a yacht in the Mediterranean Sea? Or is that a absolutely your answer could be rich bum? <laughs> if that's what yeah, it wants just to be rich bum, I think would be I'd like to be a student of the world where I just read philosophy books, you know, about the plight of life. But actually, I'm being like, you know, fed grapes individually on the deck of a yacht. That's what that's what I'd like to do. Oh, you want to be the lady from Cambridge Analytica? Yeah, <laughs> I can't remember her name. Are you yeah. uh, are you more of a Sandra Bullock from Speed or Sandra Bullock from Speed Two person? 
Wow. You know, I don't really remember Speed 2, so I'm going to say Speed. Does she have a big character uh, development in Speed 2? That's the one on the boat, right? Correct, with uh, Jason Patrick. She's uh, she's the lead. She's the main hero, not the reluctant sidekick hero to Keanu Reeves in the first one. Got it. I'm more of a reluctant sidekick hero. I like the kind of, you know, Bruce Willis and Die Hard. He doesn't really want to be there, but now that he is, he's got to take care of business. Oh, man, I just watched a documentary about Die Hard and how different it is from the novel. I've, I've read the novel. I don't know if you have. Um, it's bad. I didn't even know there was a novel. There is. It is based... Okay, I don't, I'm going to give you a very brief history on the, the John McClane character. Um, there was a TV show for, based off of the novel for Frank Sinatra. Um, Frank, Frank Sinatra wanted to do a sequel. The guy was forced to write another book. It took him 10 years. By law, they had <laughs> offered Die Hard the movie to Frank Sinatra first, even though he was super old. He turned it down. But in the novel, it's based off of the main characters of Frank Sinatra's age, because Frank Sinatra is old, and um, John McClane drops his daughter down the uh, down the building, as opposed to the villain. Yikes! If you want, the, listen, it's, I'm not blaming the novelist here. He was put in a really tough position. He wrote the first novel. They made a TV show off of it. Frank Sinatra wanted to do another TV show, so they made him write another novel. He had to write it around Frank Sinatra's age. That's why it was so bad. But if you ever want to read a bad novel that became into a really good movie, that's the novel for you. Um, if you can save either a beached whale, the beach whales, all the beach whales, all the homeless, or prevent the inevitable zombie apocalypse, which one would you do? In this scenario, the zombie apocalypse is inevitable? Inevitable. I'm not saying it's coming tomorrow inevitable. or next week, but uh -huh. it's inevitable. At some point in the road, within your lifetime, the zombie apocalypse will happen. It seems like, in terms of the like Kantian moral philosophy of the greatest good, you'd have to go with preventing the zombie apocalypse. I mean, there's a lot of people buried down there. That's going to be really hard to stave off. Um, I'd probably go zombie apocalypse one, homeless two, and I'm very sorry to the beach whales. I do think they're beautiful creatures, but I'm kind of a people first kind of person. Yeah, I'd go in the opposite order. Um, homeless. You'd go beach, beach whales first. No, no, well, not no. Beach whales would be second. I'd go homeless first because you know, unlike like dog and cat lovers, I love my cat. He's in my room recording with us. Domino the cat in our dawn. Um, I, 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 I like people generally over animals. I'm not gonna be one of the people that get really sad over a cat dying as opposed to a human dying. So it goes the homeless beach whales, then the zombie apocalypse, because I am one of those people that think you know we may, we might need a hard reset. And the zombie apocalypse mm. might, might be a blessing in disguise for us. Got it. Yeah. No, I think uh, I'd avoid, you know, every time I see one of these dystopian movies, you know, like The Road or I read that book, right? I'm always thinking, take me out in the first nuclear blast. I don't want to be walking around the hills of Appalachia with a shopping cart full of two cans of beans and a gun with two bullets in it. No, thanks. Uh, take me out in the first wave. Plus, they never show anybody dying of all the very common diseases we take for granted of today. Like, you, people will die from diarrhea yeah. all the time. Or, like, a common mm -hmm. cold and all this stuff. Or, like, what if you get a toothache? What are you going to do in the zombie apocalypse with a toothache? You have to be like Tom Hanks and Castaway. I Which looks super painful. Super painful. All right, totally. David. That's why I'm trying to go out in the first wave. <laughs> so you don't even feel anything. This is why you want to be shot in the head as opposed by That's asking why I live in New York. question. That's why you live in New York. <laughs> all right. Uh, David, plug some shit. Tell us where you are, where you can find you, and all that stuff. 
Oh, great. Yeah, I'm on Twitter at uh, by David Gardner, where you can read my SJW takes. I never actually say that out loud, social <laughs> justice warrior. Okay, yeah, uh, you can read my takes. Uh, I've got stories up at Bleacher Report all the time, but also make sure to uh, just go to the website on a day-to-day basis, because I've got colleagues who are turning out incredible work, and uh, I've got some super secret, very exciting projects for 2020, so stay tuned, and uh, I'll be happy to be following along uh, with your work as well, Joseph, and thanks for having me bunch no problem everybody you can follow me on twitter at joseph nerdone you're already here because of Substack, so you're subscribed um david i look forward to the marty janetti line form feature yeah.